Chapter 5 When he returned, she was dressed as usual. Now could I get out without anybody seeing me? she asked. The town is not yet astir. But you have had no breakfast. Oh, I don't want any. I fear I ought not to have run away from that school. Things seem so different in the cold light of morning, don't they? What Mr. Philotson will say, I don't know. It was quite by his wish that I went there. He is the only man in the world for whom I have any respect or fear. I hope he'll forgive me, but he'll scold me dreadfully, I expect. Go to him and explain, began Jude. Oh, no, you shan't. I don't care for him. He may think what he likes. I shall do just as I choose. But you just this moment said, Well, if I did, I shall do as I like for all him. I have thought of what I shall do. Go to the sister of one of my fellow students in the training school, who has asked me to visit her. She is a school near Shaston, about eighteen miles from here, and I shall stay there till this has blown over and I get back into training school again. At the last moment, he persuaded her to let him make her a cup of coffee in a portable apparatus he kept in his room for use on rising to go to his work every day before the household was astir. Now a do bit to eat with it, he said, and off we go. You can have a regular breakfast when you get there. They went quietly out of the house, Jude accompanying her to the station. As they departed, along the street, a head was thrust out of an upper window of his lodging and quickly withdrawn. Sue still seemed sorry for her rashness and wished she had not rebelled, telling him at parting that she would let him know as soon as she got readmitted to the training school. They stood rather miserably together on the platform and it was apparent that he wanted to say more. "'I want to tell you something, two things,' he said hurriedly as the train came up. "'One is a warm one, the other a cold one.' "'Jude,' she said, "'I know one of them, and you mustn't.' "'What?' "'You mustn't love me. You are to like me. That is all.' Jude's face became so full of complicated glooms that hers was agitated in sympathy as she bade him adieu through the carriage window, and then the train moved on, and waving her pretty hand to him as she vanished away. Melchester was a dismal place enough for Jude that Sunday of her departure, and the clothes so hateful that he did not go once to the cathedral services. The next morning there came a letter from her, which, with her usual promptitude, she had written directly she had reached her friend's house. She told him of her safe arrival and comfortable quarters, and then added, What I really write about, dear Jude, is something I said to you at parting. You had been so very good and kind to me that when you were out of sight, I felt what a cruel and ungrateful woman I was to say it, and it has reproached me ever since. If you want to love me, Jude, you may. I don't mind at all and I'll never say again that you mustn't. Now, I won't write any more about that. You do forgive your thoughtless friend for her cruelty, and won't make her miserable by saying you don't? Ever. Sue. It would be superfluous to say what his answer was, and how he thought what he would have done had he been free, which should have rendered a long residence with a female friend quite unnecessary for Sue. 
He felt he might have been pretty sure of his own victory if it had come to a conflict between Philotston and himself for the possession of her. Yet Jude was in danger of attaching more meaning to Sue's impulsive note than it was really intended to bear. After the lapse of a few days, he found himself hoping that she would write again, but he received no further communication, and in the intensity of his solicitude, he sent another note, suggesting that he should pay her a visit some Sunday, the distance being under eighteen miles. He expected a reply on the second morning after dispatching his missive, but none came. The third morning arrived, the postman did not stop. This was Saturday, and in a feverish state of anxiety about her, he sent off three brief lines, stating that he was coming the following day, for he felt sure something had happened. His first and natural thought had been that she was ill from her immersion, but it soon occurred to him that somebody would have written for her in such a case. Conjectures were put to an end by his arrival at the village schoolhouse near Shaston on the bright morning of Sunday between eleven and twelve o'clock, when the parish was as vacant as a desert, most of the inhabitants having gathered inside the church, whence their voices could occasionally be heard in unison. A little girl opened the door. Miss Bright said, Miss Brighthead is upstairs, she said, and will you please walk up to her? Is she ill? Jude asked hastily. Only a little. Not very. Jude entered and ascended. On reaching the landing, a voice told him which way to turn, the voice of Sue calling his name. He passed the doorway and found her lying in a little bed in a room a dozen feet square. Oh, Sue! he cried, sitting down beside her and taking her hand. How is this? You couldn't write? No, it wasn't that, she answered. I did catch a bad cold, but I could have written, only I wouldn't. Why not? Frightening me like this. Yes, that was what I was afraid of, but I had decided not to write to you any more. They wouldn't have me back at the school. That's why I couldn't write. Not the fact, but the reason. Well, they not only won't have me, but they gave me a parting piece of advice. What? She did not answer directly. I vowed I would never tell you, Jude, it is so vulgar and distressing. Is it about us? Yes, but do tell me. Well, somebody has sent them baseless reports about us, and they say you and I ought to marry as soon as possible for the sake of my reputation. There, now I have told you, and I wish I hadn't. Oh, poor Sue. I don't think of you like that means. It did just occur to me to regard you in the way that they think I do, but I hadn't begun to. I have recognized that the courtship was merely nominal, since we met as total strangers. But my marrying you, dear Jude, why, of course, if I had reckoned upon marrying you, I shouldn't have come to you so often. And I never supposed you thought of such a thing as marrying me till the other evening, when I began to fancy you did love me a little. Perhaps I ought not to have been so intimate with you. It is all my fault. Everything is my fault, always. The speech seemed a little forced and unreal, and they regarded each other with a mutual distress. I was so blind at first, she went on. I didn't see what you felt at 
all. Oh, you've been unkind to me. You have to look upon me as a sweetheart without saying a word and leaving me to discover it myself. Your attitude to me has become known, and naturally, they think we've been doing wrong. I shall never trust you again. Yes, Sue, he said simply. I am to blame. More than you think. I was quite aware that you did not suspect till within the last meeting or two what I was feeling about you. I admit that our meeting as strangers prevented a sense of relationship, and that it was a sort of subterfuge to avail myself of it. But you don't think I deserve a little consideration for concealing my wrong, very wrong sentiments, since I couldn't have helped having them? She turned her eyes doubtfully towards him, and then looked away as if afraid she might forgive him. By every law of nature and sex, a kiss was the only rejoinder that fitted the mood and the moment, under the suasion of which Sue's undemonstrative regard of him might not inconceivably have changed its temperature. Some men would have cast scruples to the winds and ventured it, oblivious both of Sue's declaration of her neutral feelings and of the pair of autographs in the vestry chest of Arabella's parish church. Jude did not. He had, in fact, Come, to, come in part to tell his own fatal story. It was upon his lips, yet at the hour of this distress he could not disclose it. He preferred to dwell upon the recognized barriers between them. Of course, I know you don't care about me in any particular way, he sorrowed. You ought not, and you are right. You belong to Mr. Philotston. I suppose he has been to see you? "'Yes,' she said shortly, her face changing a little. "'Though I didn't ask him to come. "'You are glad, of course, that he has been. "'But I shouldn't care if he didn't come any more.' "'It was very perplexing to her lover "'that she should be piqued at his honest acquiescence in his rival "'if Jude's feelings of love were depreciated by her. "'He went on to something else. "'This will blow over, dear Sue,' he said. The training school authorities are not all the world. You can get to be a student some other, no doubt. I'll ask Mr. Philotston, she said decisively. Sue's kind hostess now returned from church, and there was no more intimate conversation. Jude left in the afternoon, hopelessly unhappy. But he had seen her, and sat with her. Such intercourse as that would have to content him for the remainder of his life. The lesson of renunciation it was necessary and proper that he, as a parish priest, should learn. But the next morning when he awoke, he felt rather vexed with her, and decided that she was rather unreasonable, not to say capricious. Then, in illustration of what he had begun to discern as one of her redeeming characteristics, there came promptly a note which she must have written almost immediately after he had gone from her. Forgive me for my petulance yesterday. I was horrid to you, I know it, and I feel perfectly miserable at my horridness. It was so dear of you not to be angry. Jude, please still keep me as your friend and associate with all my faults. I'll try not to be like it again. I am coming from Melchester on Saturday to get my things away from the T.S. and C., I could walk with you for half an hour if you would like. You are repentant, Sue. Jude forgave her straight away, 
and asked her to call for him at the cathedral works when she came. Chapter 6 Meanwhile, a middle-aged man was dreaming a dream of great beauty concerning the writer of the above letter. He was Richard Philotston, who had recently removed from the mixed school at Lumsden, near Christminster, to undertake a large boys' school in his native town of Shaston, which stood on a hill sixty miles to the southwest as the crow flies. A glance at the place and its accessories was almost enough to reveal that the schoolmaster's plans and dreams so long indulged in had been abandoned for some new dream in which neither the church nor literature had much in common. Essentially an unpractical man, he was now bent on making and saving money for a practical purpose, that of keeping a wife who, if she chose, might conduct one of the girls' schools adjoining his own, for which purpose he had advised her to go into training, since she would not marry him offhand. About the time that Jude was removing from Marygreen to Melchester, and entering on adventures at the latter place with Sue, the schoolmaster was settling down in the new schoolhouse at Shaston, all the furniture being fixed, the books shelved, and the nails driven. He had begun to sit in his parlor during the dark winter nights and reattempt some of his old studies, one branch which had included Roman Britannic antiquities, an unremunerative labor for national schoolmaster, but a subject that after his abandonment of the university scheme had interest him as being comparatively underworked mine, practicable to those who, like himself, had lived in lonely spots where these remains were abundant, and were seen to compel inferences in startling contrast to accepted views on the civilization of that time. A resumption of this investigation was the outward and apparent hobby of Mr. Philotston at present. His ostensible reason for going alone into fields where causeways, dikes, and tumuli abounded, or shutting himself up in his house with a few urns, tiles, and mosaics he had collected, instead of calling round upon his new neighbors, who, for their part, had shown themselves willingly enough to be friendly with him. But it was not the real, or the whole, reason, after all. Thus, on a particular evening in the month, when it had grown quite late to near midnight indeed, and the light of his lamp shining from his window at a salient angle of the hilltop town over infinite miles of valley westward, announced as by words a place and person giving over to study. He was not exactly studying. The interior of the room, the books, the furniture, the schoolmaster's loose coat, his attitude at the table, even the flickering of the fire, bespoke the same dignified tale of undistracted research, more than credible to a man who had had no advantages beyond those of his own making. And yet the tale, true enough till latterly, was not true now. What he was regarding was not history. They were historic notes, written in a bold womanly hand at his dictation some months before, and it was the clerical rendering of word after word that absorbed him. He presently took from a drawer a carefully tied bundle of letters, few, very few, as correspondence counts nowadays. Each was in its envelope just as it had arrived, 
and the handwriting was of the same womanly character as the historic notes. He unfolded them one by one and read them musingly. At first sight there seemed in these small documents to be absolutely nothing to muse over. They were straightforward, frank letters, signed Sue B., just such ones as would be written during short absences, with no other thought than their speedy destruction, and chiefly concerning books and reading, and other experiences of a training school, forgotten doubtless by the writer with the passing of the day of their in indicting. In one of them, quite a recent note, the young woman said that she had received his considerate letter, and that it was honorable and generous of him to say he would not come to see her oftener than she desired, the school being such an awkward place for callers, and because of her strong wish that her engagement to him should not be known, which it would infallibly be if he visited her often. Over these phrases the schoolmaster poured. What precise shade of satisfaction was to be gathered from a woman's gratitude that the man who loved her had not been often to see her? The problem occupied him, distracted him. He opened another drawer and found therein an envelope from which he withdrew a photograph of Sue as a child, long before he had known her, standing under trellis work with a little basket in her hand. There was another of her as a young woman, her dark eyes and hair making a very distinct and attractive picture of her, which just disclosed, too, the thoughtfulness that lay behind her lighter moods. It was a duplicate of the one she had given Jude, and would have given to any man. Philotston brought it halfway to his lips, but withdrew it in doubt at her perplexing phrases ultimately kissing the dead pasteboard with all the passionateness and more than all the devotion of a young man of eighteen. The schoolmaster's was an unhealthy-looking old-fashioned face, rendered more old-fashioned by his style of shaving. A certain gentlemanliness had been imparted to it by nature, suggesting an inherent wish to do rightly by all. His speech was a little slow, but his tones were sincere enough to make his hesitation no defect. His graying hair was curly and radiated from a point in the middle of his crown. There were four lines across his forehead, and he only wore spectacles when reading at night. It was almost certainly a renunciation forced upon him by his academic purpose, rather than a distaste for women, which had hitherto kept him from closing in with one of the sex in matrimony. Such silent proceedings as those of this evening were repeated many and oft times when he was not under the eye of the boys, whose quick and penetrating regard would frequently become almost intolerable for the self-conscious master in his present anxious care for Sue, making him, in the gray hours of morning, dread to meet anew the gimlet glances, lest they should read what the dream within him was. He had honorably acquiesced in Sue's announced wish that he was not often to visit her at the training school, but at length his patience became sorely tired, and he set out one Saturday afternoon to pay her an unexpected call. There the news of her departure, expulsion as it might almost have been considered, was flashed upon him without warning or mitigation as he stood at the door expecting in a few minutes to behold her face 
and when he turned away, he could hardly see the road before him. Sue had, in fact, never written a line to her suitor on the subject, although it was 14 days old. A short reflection told him that this proved nothing, a natural delicacy being as ample a reason for silence as any degree of blameworthiness. They had informed him at the school where she was living, and having no immediate anxiety about her comfort, his thoughts took the direction of a burning indignation against the training school committee. In his bewilderment, Philotston entered the adjacent cathedral, just now in a direly dismantled state by reason of the repairs. He sat down on a block of freestone, regardless of the dusty imprint it had made on his breechers, and his listless eyes following the movements of the workmen, he presently became aware that the reputed culprit, Sue's lover Jude, was one amongst them. Jude had never spoken to his former hero since the meeting by the model of Jerusalem. Having inadvertently witnessed Philotston's tentative courtship of Sue in the lane, there had grown up in the younger man's mind a curious dislike to think of the elder, to meet him, to communicate in any way with him. And since Philotston's success in obtaining at least her promise had become known to Jude, he had frankly recognized that he did not wish to see or hear of his senior any more, learn anything of his pursuits, or even imagine again what excellencies might appertain to his character. On this very day of the schoolmaster's visit, Jude was expecting Sue, as she had promised. And when, therefore, he saw the schoolmaster in the nave of the building, saw, moreover, that he was coming to speak to him, he felt no little embarrassment, which Philotston's own embarrassment prevented his observing. Jude joined him, and they both withdrew from the other workmen to the spot where Philotston had been sitting. Jude offered him a piece of sackcloth for a cushion, and told him it was dangerous to sit on the bare block. "'Yes, yes,' said Mr. Philotston abstractedly, as he reseated himself his eyes resting on the ground as if he were trying to remember where he was. "'I won't keep you very long. It was merely that I have heard that you may have seen my little friend Sue recently. It occurred to me to speak to you on that account. I merely want to ask about her.' "'I think I know what,' Jude hurriedly said. "'About her escaping from the training school and her coming to see me?' Yes. Well, Jude, for a moment, felt an unprincipled and fiendish wish to annihilate his rival at all cost. By the exercise of that treachery, which love for the same woman renders possible to men the most honorable in every other relation in life, he could send off Philotston in agony and defeat by saying that the scandal was true, and that Sue had irretrievably committed herself with him, but... His action did not respond for a moment to his animal instincts, and what he said was, "'I am glad of your kindness in coming to talk plainly to me about it. You know what they say? That I ought to marry her.' "'What? And I wish with all my soul I could.' Philotston trembled, and his naturally pale face acquired a corpse-like sharpness in its line. "'I had no idea that it was of this nature.' God forbid. 
"'No, no,' said Jude aghast. "'I thought you understood. "'I mean that I, were I in a position to marry her or someone "'and settle down instead of living in lodgings here and there, "'I should be glad.' "'What he had really meant was simply that he loved her. "'But since this painful matter has been opened up, "'what really happened?' asked Philotston with the firmness of a man who felt that a sharp smart now was better than a long agony of suspense hereafter. Cases arise, and this is one, when even ungenerous questions must be put to make false assumptions impossible, and to kill scandal. Jude explained readily, giving the whole series of adventures including the night at the shepherd's, her wet arrival at his lodging, her indisposition from her immersion, their vigil of discussion, and his seeing her off the next morning. "'Well, now,' said Philotston at the conclusion, "'I take it as your final word, and I know I can believe you that the suspicion which led to her rustication is an absolutely baseless one?' "'It is,' said Jude solemnly. Absolutely. So help me God. The schoolmaster rose. Each of the twain felt that the interview could not comfortably merge in a friendly discussion of their recent experiences, after the manner of friends, and when Jude had taken him round and shown him some features of the renovation which the old cathedral was undergoing, Philotston bade the young man good day and went away. The visit took place about eleven o'clock in the morning, but no Sue appeared. When Jude went to his dinner at one, he saw his beloved ahead of him in the street leading up from the north gate, walking as if in no way looking for him. Speedily overtaking her, he remarked that he had asked her to come to him at the cathedral, and she said she had promised. "'I have been to get my things from the college,' she said, an observation which he was expected to take as an answer, though it was not one. Finding her to be in this evasive mood, he felt inclined to give her the information so long withheld. "'You have not seen Mr. Philotston today?' he ventured to inquire. "'I have not, but I am not going to be cross-examined about him, and if you ask anything more, I won't answer.' "'It is very odd that—' he stopped, regarding her. "'What?' "'You are often not so nice in your real presence as you are in your letters.' "'Does it really seem so to you?' said she, smiling with quick curiosity. "'Well, that's strange. But I feel just the same about you, Jude. When you were gone away, I seemed such a cold-hearted.' As she knew his sentiment towards her, Jude saw that they were getting upon dangerous ground. It was now, he thought, that he must speak as an honest man. But he did not speak, and she continued. It was that which made me write and say I didn't mind your loving me if you wanted too much. The exaltation he might have felt at what that implied, or seemed to imply, was nullified by his intention, and he rested rigid till he began. I've never told you— Yes, you have, murmured she. But, I mean, I have never told you my history. All of it. But I guess it. I know nearly. Jude looked up. 
Could she possibly know of that morning performance of his with Arabella, with which in a few months had ceased to be a marriage more completely than by death? He saw that she did not. I can't quite tell you here in the street, he went on with a gloomy tongue, and he would better not come to my lodgings. Let us go in there. The building by which they stood was the market house. It was the only place available, and they entered, the market being over and the stalls and areas empty. He would have preferred a more congenial spot, but, as usually happens, in a place of romantic field or solemn aside for his tale, it was told while they walked up and down over a floor littered with rotten cabbage leaves, and amid all the usual squalors of decayed vegetable matter and unsaleable refuse. He began and finished his brief narrative which merely led up to the information that he had married a woman some years earlier, and that his wife was living still. Almost before her countenance had time to change, she hurried out the words, "'Why didn't you tell me before?' "'I couldn't. It seemed so cruel to tell it.' "'To yourself, Jude. So it was better to be cruel to me?' "'No, dear darling,' cried Jude passionately. He tried to take her hand, but she withdrew it. Their old relations of confidence seemed suddenly to have ended, and the antagonisms of sex to sex were left without any counter-imposing predilectations. She was his comrade, friend, unconscious sweetheart no longer, and her eyes regarded him in estranged silence. "'I am ashamed of that episode in my life which brought about the marriage,' he continued. I can't explain it precisely now. I could have done it if you had taken it differently. But how can I? She burst out. Here I have been saying or writing that, that you might love me or something of the sort, just out of charity. And all the time, oh, it's perfectly damnable how things are, she said, stamping her foot in a nervous quiver. You take me wrong, Sue. I never thought you cared for me at all till quite lately, so I felt it did not matter. Do you care for me, Sue? You know how I mean. I don't like you out of charity at all. It was a question which, in the circumstances, Sue did not want to choose to answer. I suppose she, your wife, is a very pretty woman, even if she's wicked? She asked quickly. She's pretty enough, as far as that goes. Prettier than I am, no doubt. You are not the least alike, and I have never seen her for years, but she's sure to come back. They always do. How strange of you to stay apart from her like this, said Sue, her trembling limp and lumpy throat belying her irony. You, such a religious man, how will the demigods in your pantheon, I mean those legendary persons you call saints, intercede for you after this? Now if I had done such a thing, it would have been different. And not remarkable, for I at least don't regard marriage as a sacrament. Your theories are not so advanced as your practice. Sue, you are terribly cutting when you like to be. A perfect Voltaire, but you must treat me as you will. When she saw how wretched he was, she softened, 
and trying to blink away her sympathetic tears, she said with all the winning reproachfulness of a heart-hurt woman, "'Ah, uh, you should have told me before you gave me that idea that you wanted to be allowed to love me. I had no feeling before that moment at the railway station, except—' For once, Sue was as miserable as he in her attempts to keep herself free from emotion and her less than half success. Don't cry, dear, he implored. I am not crying because I meant to love you, but because of your want of confidence. They moved on a dozen paces, and she showed herself recovered. It was distracting to Jude, and his heart would have ached less had she appeared anyhow, but as she did appear. Essentially large-minded and generous on reflection, despite a previous exercise of those narrow womanly humors on impulse that were necessary to give her sex. I don't blame you for what you couldn't help, she said, smiling. How should I be so foolish? I do blame you a little bit for not telling me before. But, after all, it doesn't matter. We should have had to kept apart, you see, even if this had not been in your life. No, we shouldn't, Sue. This is the only obstacle. You forget that I must have loved you and wanted to be your wife, even if there had been no obstacle, said Sue, with a gentle seriousness which did not reveal her mind. And then we are cousins, and it is bad for cousins to marry, and I am engaged to somebody else. As to our going on together as we were going, in a sort of friendly way, the people round us would have made it unable to continue. Their views of the relations of man and woman are limited, as is provided by their expelling me from the school. Their philosophy only recognizes relations based on animal desire. The wide field of strong attachment where desire plays, at least, only a secondary part, is ignored by them. The part of, who is it? Venus? Urina? Her being able to talk learnedly showed she was mistress of herself again, and before they parted she had almost regained her vivacious glance, her rep reciprocity of tone, her gay manner and her second-thought attitude of critical largeness towards others of her age and sex. He could speak more freely now. There were several reasons against my telling you rashly. One was, I have said, another is that it was always impressed upon me that I ought not to marry, that I belong to an odd and peculiar family, the wrong breed for marriage. Ah, uh, who used to say that to you? My great-aunt. She said it always ended badly with us follies. That's strange. My father used to say the same thing to me. They stood, possessed by the same thought, ugly enough, even as an assumption, that a union between them, had such been possible, would have meant a terrible intensification of unfitness. Two bitters in one dish. Oh, but there can't be anything in it, she said with nervous lightness. Our family has been unlucky of late in years choosing mates. 
That's all. And then they pers pretended to persuade themselves that all that had happened was of no consequence, and that they could still be cousins and friends and warm correspondents and have happy, genial times when they met, even if they met less frequently than before. Their parting was in good friendship, and yet Jude's last look into her eyes was now tinged with inquiry, for he felt that he did not, even now, know quite her mind.' 